Let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, these kings that we've been studying and how we can apply uh, this truth to our life. And Lord, we pray tonight as we look at um, this uh, King uh, Manasseh and just pray that you would apply the truth that we uh, learn about him to our own lives and, and realize that we uh, um, never have to give up on, on praying for someone's salvation or sharing Christ with someone. There's always hope. And that's kind of what the example tonight is with Manasseh. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all have a good week so far, hopefully? Yeah, yeah, yeah? good. All right. <coughs> huh, I feel battle here tonight. Second, Second Chronicles chapter 33. And uh, chap- chapter 33, Second Chronicles, verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashereth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Uh, And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnon and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, necromancers, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image, verse 7, of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in, his, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more Remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I had commanded them, all the all the law, the statutes and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh, verse nine, led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After he built, afterwards, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it uh, around Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. And he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah, And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem 
and he threw them outside of the city. Verse 16, he also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer uh, and how God, moved, God was moved by his entreaty and all his uh, sin and his faithlessness and, all the, uh, and the sites on which he built the high places and set up the ashram and the uh, images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. And so Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in the house of Ammon, his son, and his son reigned in his uh, place. So you, you look at this story, and you remember who his dad was, right? Hezekiah, we looked at that. We've been looking at him for two weeks, and he was a, a, a God-fearing king and did mostly right in the eyes of the Lord. He got a little pride mixed up there at the end, but then he repented of it. And um, a lot of times when you think of notoriously evil people or immoral people, uh, sometimes we look at people like that and we say, there's no way they could ever be converted. And we just kind of forget to pray for people like that. Um, And you combine all those immoral people and all the evil people you may know about into one person. You're talking about Manasseh. (laughs) This guy was just uh, immoral. He was... uh, worshiping idols and spirits and he was a violent person and a lot of times we look at somebody like that and we say you know what i think they're beyond the hope of the grace of god Uh, sometimes even when we're praying for our own relatives to be saved and stuff we 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 grow weary right we're like oh man i don't know if this is ever going to happen and they're probably by this comparison good people (laughs) okay uh but even though i think the conversion of a lot of those people are, is not commonplace. We don't see a lot of that happening. Um, I heard one evangelist say that there's going to be three surprises when we get to heaven. First of all, number one, some of the people we thought would be there won't. Secondly, some of the people we never thought would be there will be. <laughs> and thirdly, will be there. <laughs> that would be the third surprise. Uh, and so the, the story of King Manasseh shows that what is really, and the scriptures reiterate this over and over, especially through the New Testament, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so we want to focus on that tonight because Manasseh combines into one person, really, the most, you could say, flagrant sins that you could ever even imagine. Uh, He set up immoral Baal worship in the temple of Jerusalem. It says that he was into witchcraft, he was into sorcery, he was into spiritism. Um, He practiced human sacrifice to the extent that he sacrificed his own children to an idol. I mean, it's crazy to a pagan god. Um, He slaughtered uh, many, many uh, innocent people, and that included many of the prophets. 
historians believe that, according to Jewish historians, remember Isaiah was a contemporary of Hezekiah. And they, they believe that Isaiah's, or Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, actually probably executed Isaiah. And they say that he was, he was uh, maybe put together between two boards and then slowly sold in half. Um, Hebrews talks about that, uh, how, how people were, were done that. But in 2 Kings chapter 21, just to give you a little more background on Manasseh, it says in verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that included executing the, the prophet Isaiah, and uh, he, he caused Judah to do more evil, we read, than the enemies that God had destroyed before Israel. I mean, think about that. I mean, here is, is God's chosen people, and this is their leader, and, and, you know, God's wiping out other nations because of their sin, and now you have a king that does worse than the other nations that he's wiped out. That's how bad he was. And yet, the story says that he was converted. He was turned to the Lord. And, and, you know, that should be good news, I think, for those of us who have loved ones who've really pursued sin, you could say, with a vengeance. And that gives us hope they're not beyond they're not beyond God's grace. It's good news as we pray for the conversion of, of even some of the, the wicked leaders we have in our, our government even now. You know, we don't need to give up hope on them. God could save them. You know, they're, they're, they're not any worse off than, than anyone else um, because sin is sin. And, and so we need to be continually, continually hopeful that God will somehow reach these people because God can do it. And it's, it's good news for anyone hearing the message who's also committed gross sin in their own lives. Um, I'm sure there's many people in this room tonight who's had a, a background of, of lots of things you would rather not talk about here in this room tonight, okay, because you're not proud of those things. And yet God saved you. God brought you to a point of repentance. And, um, I mean, even if you were raised in a godly home and turned away from what maybe your parents taught you or whatever, that's, that's what Manasseh basically did. And yet, he found God's mercy, and he repented, and the Bible says, so can we. And so tonight, we want to look at, because God is merciful, there is hope. There's hope for the worst of uh, sinners who repent. Okay, there's always hope. And so, if anyone could be on hope, w- would be beyond hope, in our minds, it would be this, this guy, this king, Manasseh. And uh, he was basically the worst of sinners. Um, little history, it tells us there that he was 12 years old when he began to reign. All right? And um, most Bible scholars believe that he probably shared the throne with his dad until his dad passed away during that kind of a co-regency thing. So his dad was kind of grooming him to be king with his godly father, King Hezekiah. And so he probably would have been around 22 when his dad passed away, and that's when he kind of took over the throne by himself. But in spite of, in spite of his, his father's, what we saw last week and the week before, godly example, okay, he quickly turned the kingdom from a, a spiritual high to a low described more evil than the nations which Israel uh, deposed uh, before the land. 
And so they, he was worse than the enemies that they, they took out earlier. And a couple points under here. I, I think this is, this is, is it's interesting because Manasseh's sin was unusually bad. And, and the reason we'd say it was unusually bad was, first of all, he sinned against great light. Um, it was not like Manasseh never heard of the God of Israel and how wonderful the God was. I mean, he was, his father was the most godly king after David. So surely Hezekiah tried to lead by example. Even though he fell into pride, as we found out later in his years, he even learned from that. And what did he do? He repented, he, he humbled himself, and he walked with God, the Bible says. And it's inconceivable that this godly king, Hezekiah, did not spend time kind of wanting to uh, kind of invest spiritually in the life of his son. And so, you know, he probably did that. And he was probably telling his son what it's going to be like when you're king and, and maybe some of the temptations to go along with that power and don't make the same mistake I made. You know, listen to your pride or all that. Don't do that. You know, keep yourself humble before God. And he probably went on and told the Manasseh the great things that God had done um, before them that were accomplished during his reign and the protection that God afforded to them because they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. <clears throat> and uh, I think there, there's also, you have to remember, alongside of Hezekiah, as I said earlier, was his contemporary, the prophet Isaiah. That was kind of God's prophet to Hezekiah. And um, there were other godly men, no doubt, in the kingdom at that time. And so Manasseh was exposed to all this, and yet, um, you know, he probably saw it a regular, on a regular basis, the, the priests and the Levites. <clears throat> he probably heard the teaching of the law of God regularly. He was born into what we would call a spiritual oasis, right? But what did he do? He spurned all that and he walked away from it. You know, some of you have been raised and born in the church. You raised up in the church and that's all you know. <clears throat> make sure you make good use of that time and all the spiritual truth that's being spoken into your life. Because I've seen it time and time again. You know, kids are raised up in a Christian family and then it comes time for them to go to college and in four years they come back to the parents and the parents don't even know who their kids are anymore. They've walked away from the Lord. They don't want anything to do with church. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with anything. And it's a downhill battle from there. But it, it's, very, uh, um, it, it's very frustrating. But what I've seen is a lot of times the most flagrant sinners are those who reject, for whatever reason, that godly upbringing. And sometimes it's just to incur pain on the parents that maybe they didn't appreciate they're overly strict, whatever it might be, so they're going to rebel and do their own thing, and they're going to show them. And when they turn from the things of God, they seem to be, uh, <coughs> uh, kind of have a real passion or a real drive to rid themselves completely of the faith that they rejected. It's almost like they want to disprove their parents' faith. And, and there's a lot of people in, <coughs> in history, there's a lot of people in Hollywood that have had a Christian upbringing. Um, a lot of people don't know this. I read this this past week. Hugh Hefner, the, the whole the, the vile man who was in charge of the whole Playboy thing. I mean, his, he was the son of a Methodist minister. You know? Unfortunately, I think when 
his son got so wealthy and had this big thing. His dad actually went to work for the Playboy Corporation. <laughs> so I don't know what kind of ministry he was, but I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. He was a Methodist minister. <laughs> or you think of somebody like Alice Cooper. Well, that's what they say. Cooper was born in Detroit, Michigan. And his father was an evangelist in the Church of Christ. Um, and so y- you see this over and over and over again. I think it was, I read Brad Pitt grew up in a Southern Baptist home. And it doesn't matter whether it's Southern Baptist, doesn't matter whether it's Catholic, it doesn't matter what the denomination is. The point is, is that they were exposed to the light. They were, they were exposed to the gospel to some degree. And um, unfortunately, you know, they turned away from it. And here we had King Hezekiah, who was a true man of God. And you wonder, wow, this guy did everything right. Why did his son turn out so bad? Um, it doesn't tell us. The, the text doesn't tell us. Okay? Uh, but we need to remember that as parents, you know, we have a great responsibility to train our children up in the ways of the Lord. Ultimately, though, each person, what? They have to answer to God for him or herself. All right, I've seen this time and time again. You know, people do their best, parents do their best raising their kids up, and when the, the kids are older, they walk away from the Lord. And you know what? You need to continue to pray for them. You need to continue to reach out to them. But you know what? They're, they're responsible for their, their decisions. And you may be growing, growing up in a, in a Christian home, and your parents may model everything correctly and do everything right, Uh, But there comes a point where they have to own their faith. They have to yield to Christ themselves, and they have to come to him as Savior and Lord. And if they don't, unfortunately, they're not saved. You can think all you want, but your parents' faith will not get you into heaven, just like Hezekiah's faith would not get uh, Manasseh a free pass here. Uh, We also need to realize that there's there's no such thing as, as lovely as children are, and, you know, we all love children, you know, the children's ministry, the whole thing. Um, they're not innocent. Okay, children are sinners. They're little sinners just like you and I. And it's, it's, it's important that we understand that. Uh, theology says that every child, even one born to Christian parents, has a, a sinful nature within them, a sin, sinful nature capable of just as the awful things that Manasseh did. They're just as capable of doing that. And sometimes we forget that. And by the way, so are we, <laughs> outside of Christ. I mean, we are. And so every child raised in a Christian home is just as much in need of a definitive conversion from God as Manasseh needed. He couldn't live on his father's faith. And we have to pray, we have to work, we have to look for signs of conversions in our children. And if they're not there, don't give ourselves false hope. You know, because little Johnny raised his hand in a Sunday school class when he was three. But little Johnny has any, no desire to be with God or godly people or read the word or, or grow in his Christian faith or whatever. Maybe he doesn't have faith. Maybe he's not a Christian. And so we need to r- dial down on that. You know, is there ever evidence of repentance from sin? Um, is there a hunger for the things of God? Is there a submission to God's word? You can see this played out in the life of someone who comes to Christ. Now, they don't do it perfectly. None of us do. 
but you do see a difference. If, if, you, if you see someone who's genuinely converted, they are, are sensitive to the things of God. And, and that's, what, that's where we have to go with that. And even those who are not outwardly rebellious, like Manasseh, you know, there's a lot of people that grow up and grow up in the church and they've never been converted, but they may not be acting like Manasseh, so everybody thinks they are, right? And those are the people, unfortunately, are going to probably stand before the Lord. Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? In your name, and the Lord's going to say, I don't even know who you are. You know, I don't want to be in that line of people. So we, we have to make sure that we understand that when the light is shed in, uh, before us, the gospel, that we're responsible to, to respond to it. Okay, we can't live just on our, our parents' faith or somebody else's faith. And Manasseh couldn't do that either. So he sinned against a great light. Secondly, he sinned boldly. Um, every unbeliever, the Bible says, is a servant, a slave of sin. But there are differences, right? There are some people who sin boldly. They don't care. You know, there are some people, you know, you could have a conversation with them. They don't care what you do. You know, you could be the Pope, and they're going to, you know, every other word's going to start with an F in their language. You know, it's just going to be just a disrespectful uh, conversation. And they don't even think about it. They're just bold sinners. They don't care about the law. They don't care about anything. They just want to do what they want to do. And outwardly, a lot of people are, are decent, law-abiding people, okay? And they're not so bold, with their sin. And so we tend to look at those people and we go, well, aren't they a good person? Well, really, they're not. Because they're, they're just as much given to their sin and, uh, you know, than anybody else. It just may not be as visible. All right? They make, they make sure their, their sin remains uh, socially acceptable, you might say. I saw a little cartoon of, of two men very well-dressed in a picture of these two men in a jail cell. And they were very trimmed up, had nice suits on and everything. And the one turned to the other and he goes, gee, I, I thought our, our sin, or I, I thought our, 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 our lifestyles um, would have been at least within community standards. You know, in other words, they were breaking the law and they didn't think it was that bad, but they thought the level of the corruption at least fell within community standards. Well, what's the community standard? You know, um, usually when you see a stop sign somewhere, what does that mean? It means you stop. Well, I can go out here. We can go out here right now and sit on the porch and watch people come down McGarvey. And there's a stop sign right there. And they, they go right through it. Not like creeping through it. I mean, they'll go 30 miles an hour through it. And it's like, wow, you don't see the stop sign? I mean, it's just so crazy. It's people just have a complete disrespect for, for that kind of thing. And so Manasseh's corruption exceeded you could say the community standards. He was somebody who you didn't want to hang out with. He was somebody who, you know what, he wasn't somebody you could point at and go, oh, I think that guy's a pretty good guy. No, you knew he was bad because he just, he just sinned boldly and he sinned openly. And he had no sense of shame. And we've all probably met people like that. Um, you know, if there would have been one of those uh, shock shows on TV, he would have been on it. And he would have been bragging about all the people he solved in half or whatever. I mean, that's the kind of people that we have today in our society. And some people sin very boldly. And they think that, you know what? Um, I can do this, so I'm just going to flaunt it. And it's like they want to be so outrageous 
and garner people's attention because of their wickedness. And um, it's hard to, to, to conceive of somebody like that, but that's where they're at. And so he sinned against great light. He sinned boldly. But then thirdly here, look at the third point. He led others into sin. <laughs> and and this, this happens when you get somebody like this, right? I mean, they're not satisfied that they're sinning in their own life. They're not satisfied that they're going on the right path, wrong path. They're trying to bring, you know, 30, 40 other people with them. So they're trying to make a, spread their evil influence throughout society. Uh, I mean, you would have thought after King Hezekiah's revival that we looked at last week and all the people were doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord and everything, you, you would have thought that someone would have stood up to the king and said, wait a minute, no, this is wrong. We can't do this. We serve the Lord God of Israel. We're, you know, I mean, we know you're the king, and hey, we really respected your dad, but you know what? You're making some wrong decisions here, Manasseh. But what did they do? They tend, people in general tend to be followers. They tend to be followers. That's what our government counts on. So if they can get just people to believe something, and even though it's not true, just keep saying it long enough, and people will finally believe it, Okay, well, this is the new definition of this. And this is the new definition of that. And, you know, I mean, for, for how many years has it been that, you know what, to take something, a foreign substance, some form of drug, some form of narcotic, and put it in your body is wrong, right? Physically, it's, it's not good for you. I, I think most of us would probably say that's true. But what has happened? Well, today it's like, no, no, let them do it. Just make it legal. That changes everything. And now they're finding out all these studies with marijuana and all that stuff. Oh, it doesn't hurt. Now they're going back. They're going back and they're, they're having to dial things back because they're seeing the, 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 the causes of the, the havoc that it's wreaking in people's lives. Because they think, well, they say it's okay to do this. You know? Um, and so they, they'll go along with this king who is bold for the Lord in one chapter last week, but they also quickly follow this other king who's very bold to go the opposite direction, right down the, the tunnel into the pit of evil. And I think as God's people, we need to be very, very careful not to be influenced to tolerate evil, be talked into tolerating evil by ungodly leaders, whether they're political leaders or they're church leaders. And it's happening in both arenas. It's easy to be swayed by a man of power or wealth. I mean, just look at what's going on with some certain bills here recently. You know, I mean, people are changing sides. And it's like, wow, we never thought you would vote for something like this. Oh, no, it's good. It's good. When everybody's saying, no, it's not, it's bad. And we all know how it's going to play it out. The bill's probably going to get passed, and taxes are going to go up on everybody, and then they're going to say, oh, I didn't realize. It's the same thing, right? It's the same little scenario that they, they play every time. But all I'm saying is that they're, they're swayed sometimes by people of power or wealth. And it, it makes you feel important to know someone who is maybe famous, whether they're a politician or whether they're a well-known Christian. And... Um, you know, a lot of times Christians are, are just as easily enamored by famous people uh, than even the world is. 
there's a uh, very well-known evangelist who just wrote a book on uh, kind of rock musicians. And, you know, I've read some portions of it, but he's having to jump through hoops to make certain musicians, quote, Christian uh, because of, well, they, they, they wrote this in a lyric or they did this. And this guy is just enamored with rock music in general and all those, those guys. And so, you know, he came out of that and so he's very much into that. But I thought, this is a stretch for the gospel. It's a stretch. It's a stretch to say that somebody's going to come to faith in Christ and continue to do what they do, but just say they're a Christian now. Um, and that's a lot of times what happens. Not all. There, there are some genuine conversions, and God, like I said, you never want to give up hope. God can save whoever he desires to save. But it points out, the point is here, is that it points out that, that um, we need to evaluate everything a leader says by God's word, by his truth. And then, when he doesn't say the right thing, we have to have the courage to stand up against that. And not be bullied, not be whatever, no matter who is promoting it. And so, the, the, the final point here, D, it, it kind of shows why Manasseh was especially a flagrant sinner. And, and this is why anybody is really. Manasseh loved himself and he hated God. That's the bottom line. Um, in John, 1 John 5, 3, in John 14, 15, God's word is very clear. It says, if we love him, we will what? We will keep his commandments. Period. I mean, you don't have to say, well, what does that mean? No, it means just what it says. You know, we can only do that through the Spirit's enabling. But it doesn't give us the right to go do whatever we want and then say, oh, by the way, I, I, I am a Christian. I, I do love God. Because people that do that love themselves and they hate God. Um, Manasseh did not want to do he did not want to observe to do all that God had commanded his people to do through Moses. That's what it said basically in, uh, in verse 8 there. He points that out. He says, look, you know, I've appointed this. If, if you, here's your blessing if you do this. And Manasseh wasn't willing to do that. Uh, but why didn't he obey? Because he, he loved himself and he hated God. That is basically the bottom line. I would say all sinners love themselves and hate God. I know that's strong language, but that's true. The Bible says we're an enemy of God outside of Christ. Uh, but it's especially true of those who, who practice idolatry, witchcraft, sorcery. I mean, this guy sacrificed his own children to the idols. Think about that. Your own, your own child. They try to manipulate spiritual power for their own benefit. I was watching a uh, a presentation on TV by Kenneth Copeland. He has this big program on this week trying to raise all this money. He has all these Word of Faith teachers on there. And I, I watched, I showed him, because part of it the other day, had some lady up there just just rambling on and didn't make any sense. I don't know what the heck she was doing. She was speaking in tongues, I guess. Bizarre, bizarre behavior, bizarre beyond belief. And it went on for like a half hour. And I'm thinking, this guy's got some bucks. It's not cheap to be on TV. And you're going to spend 30 minutes of it? Just have some lady up there blabbing on about whatever, not even saying words that people can understand? And then, you know, today you had another guy up there saying, oh, we're going to take an offering. We need to do this because, you know, it all depends on you. And boy, I, I, 
it's, it's just manipulation. They're trying to manipulate spiritual power for their own benefit. They're trying to make people feel bad if they don't give some money to these people. And they're charlatans. You know, and if you don't give me money, well, then God's not going to be nice to you. And, and you know, I don't, I don't blame the people. They're just, I, I don't even really blame Manasseh here. He's probably thinking, hey, you know what? I think if I sacrifice my son to this idol, the, the idol's going to be good to me, and he's going to bless me. I mean, he was just doing what he naturally did in his unbelieving state. You know, and that's where, I mean, it didn't work out too well for his son, obviously. But Manasseh was no doubt happy about the situation, thinking that he was going to receive some blessing because he sacrificed his son to this, this idol. Well, what does that tell you? Well, he's not concerned about his son. He's concerned about himself. That's why when you hear politicians today with this whole abortion issue saying, well, don't people know that women are still going to get pregnant? <laughs> well, okay, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, take some responsibility. You know, uh, you know, if we can't kill the baby, then what are we going to do if we get pregnant? I mean, that's their thinking. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. It's hard to conceive that people would have so little toleration for life. But I guarantee if you tried to take their life, boy, they'd, they'd do whatever they could to spare it because they're only thinking about themselves. And see, that's what, what idols do, Right? Uh, you can make your own God according to your own liking and your own image, and you worship that God, and then, you know, you're happy with that. You don't want a God telling you what to do. If you don't like a holy God who confronts your sinful be- behavior, you go create a God who tolerates sin, or you go create a society who has no God. And that's what we have today. And so at the root of all idolatry is the love of self and the hatred of the one true God who alone deserves and demands our obedient love. Um, I read this past week about an article of a, of a lady in New Jersey. She's awaiting trial. She's in the trial right now. She had a 17-month-old baby, boy, son, and she was carrying on an illicit affair, and the baby got in the way. And so she took a baby uh, wipe, and held it over the child's face until the baby died. And then went out of her house screaming, saying, oh, my baby's dead, and put on a whole show for everybody. Well, she was finally caught, and they figured out what happened, and now she's being charged. But her whole thinking was, well, this baby's an inconvenience because I can't go see my, my illicit lover when I want to because i got to care for this child. So she just kills the baby. 17-month-old son. And then you have psychologists pipe in and say, well, you know, women who kill their children are sometimes, you know, they have a very low self-esteem and, and, you know, these poor ladies. No, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says the problem is too much self-love. Not too little. The woman loved herself so much that she was willing to kill her son so she could do whatever she wanted. I mean, if anyone would be a candidate for hell, you would point to Manasseh and say, this guy is going to hell. (laughs) He is. I mean, he's like Saddam Hussein. I mean, he's, you know, 
you know, think of whoever you, you can as the worst criminal. The you're looking at this guy and you go, man, this guy is going to end up in hell one day. And sometimes as Christians, to be honest, we run, run into people like this and, and part of our fallen nature says, you know what, they probably should go to hell. <laughs> and then we stop praying for their salvation. We give up hope. And that's, that's just as dishonoring to God as probably the sin, sin of, of, that the people are doing. So we have to be careful with that. But he seems like a hopeless case if there ever was one. But the good news, as we read, is that because God is, what, merciful, it says, uh, there is hope. There's hope for you, there's hope for me, there's hope for the worst sinners who repent. Who repent. Think of the New Testament. Think of Saul of Tarsus, right? I mean, this guy went around killing Christians, overseeing the death squads that took out Christians. He was very committed to his Judaism, and he thought, you know what, these Christians are getting in the way, we need to rid society of them, and he was in charge of killing them. He calls himself the chief of sinners. But see, it's God's mercy that takes the chief of sinners and turns them into what? The best of saints. That's, that's the hope that we have. Somebody that you could be today looking at going, there's no way this person will ever come. I've shared Christ with this person so many times. Oh, this son, this daughter I've been praying for, you don't understand. No, you know what? And then you get the call. Wow, you know what? I just, I just got saved. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I treated you this way. And you're thinking, well, is this even real? <laughs> you know? And hopefully it is, and it, it plays out, and, and they're transformed by God's glorious grace and his mercy, just like Saul was. I mean, he was so transformed when certain individuals were supposed to have a meeting with him. They said, wait a minute, Paul, isn't that the Saul guy from Tarsus? Isn't that the guy that kills Christians? I don't know if I want to have a sit down with this guy. No, he's been converted. He's a new person in Christ. You know, that would be a step of faith. Um, and so what the sinner has to do is repent, though. Repent. And this is the, the second thing that we see here that Manasseh did on the back page. He did repent. He repent. And, and that's what God is waiting for, for anyone. Now, God grants us repentance, the Bible says, but we still have to do it. Uh, Manasseh didn't have, a, have to vow to join some monastery and, 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 and wear certain clothes and you know, all this stuff. He didn't have to, need, have to work on, on building up his self-esteem. What does it say in verse 12? Here's what it says. It says, and when he was in distress, remember last week we talked about sometimes trial, trials come into our lives for certain reasons. And King Hezekiah was doing everything right. He was honoring the Lord. And, and you would think, wow, you know, he was going to conquer everybody. Now, and all of a sudden, who, who comes in? The, 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 the king, uh, his enemy, and wreaks all this havoc. And it's like, wow, you could sit back and go, wait, guy, why did you let this happen to this guy? He's doing everything right. Well, it says when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And God, I love this, showed him mercy. Would you have shown him mercy if you were God? <laughs> I don't know if I would have, to be honest. I mean, I would have been, hey, you know what? You made your bed, you sleep in it, pal. You know, you don't deserve to live. You killed so many innocent people. You killed so many innocent prophets that were doing my work. You've done all this. You've taken all these people down this evil road. 
I mean, you can come up with excuse after excuse why this person deserves hell. But God says, you know what? No, I'm going to show him mercy. Mercy is God withholding from us what? What we deserve, right? And, and that we all receive his mercy if we've trusted in Christ every day. And if repentance is God's requirements for sinners to be reconciled to him, to be brought to back together in a proper relationship with him, then it's important to understand what it means. And so let's look at this. Repentance means, first of all, it means turning to God from sin, but also performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In other words, it's not just words off your mouth. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus now. I'm a, now I'm a Christian. No. Um, and I'm using the Apostle Paul's words as he summarized his message to Agrippa. In Acts 26, verse 20. Acts 26, verse 20. He kept, it says, declaring to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And he kept on declaring this message that they need to repent and they need to turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And you say, well, wait a minute, isn't... Isn't salvation by faith in Christ? Yes. Well, doesn't repentance add works to that equation? No. The biblical answer is that saving faith and repentance are kind of sides of the same coin. You can't have one with the other. You can't say you're going to have faith in Christ and be saved without repenting from your sin, without turning from your sin and turning to Christ. It's impossible. Because when you turn, you're admitting the direction you're going is what? It's wrong. You're running towards sin. You're running away from God. You're an enemy of God. Right? You're, you're a friend of the world, the Bible says. You're in darkness. And then God touches your heart. He grants you repentance. And you say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to ask him to forgive me. And, and your, your, your whole, whole action, everything changes. Why? Because your direction changes. Your focus changes. In Acts verse, uh, in 26 verse 18, Paul here relented, or related Christ's words directly to him, uh, where, where his, his, his words were related directly to Paul. And he, he was sending Paul to the Gentiles. And here's why. In verse 18 he says, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, Right? This is why we're left here on earth. <laughs> to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. See the change in direction? Darkness, light, Satan, God. In order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. There it is. <clears throat> in me. So you have faith, but you also have a turning. You also have, they have to turn. They have to repent. Turning from darkness to light. Darkness represents sinfulness. Light represents holiness. From Satan's domain to God's kingdom. That's repentance. And that's what it means when we receive the forgiveness of our sins. And it shows that it's, it's, it's synonymous with faith in Christ. Repentance is. It's the same thing. You can't truly believe in Christ without turning from your sin anymore than you can turn north at the same time you're heading south. You know, if I said, I, you know what, after church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive to uh, Los Angeles. 
And you say, well, how are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go 101 north, and I'm going to I-5, and I'm going to start going north. What would you say? You're not going to get to Los Angeles. Why? Because you're going the wrong way. You need to turn around. You need to go south. You, know, you can't go north and south at the same time. It's impossible. Okay, so it's, it's very important that we, we understand because God and sin are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. You cannot turn to God without turning from your sin. That's why when you have conversations with some people and, and they say they're a Christian, but their behavior uh, kind of shows you they're not, and they're still doing the same stuff over and over and over and over without any turning at all. And I had one conversation with one guy, and he said, well, I, just, I just love the world. I just love my sin. And I said, well, you're not a Christian. Well, how, who, who are you to tell me I'm a Christian? You know, so I showed him in the Bible. Here's what a Christian is. You, you turn from your sin to God. You, know, you don't keep on going the same direction. Uh, some people don't want to hear that. And so repentance begins with this, this, this prayer, even in the New Testament, that, that you hear me almost say every Sunday, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, a very honest prayer. That's, that's probably the only, only sinner's prayer in the Bible. You know, this other stuff that's floating around is called the sinner's prayer is anything but that. You know, oh, Jesus, please, you know, I invite you into my heart and, you know, I make you Lord of my life. And what kind of prayer is that? Who are you to make God anything? You know, I mean, I, I, it's just ridiculous. But this is a genuine prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because it shows you, you see yourself for who you are before a holy God and you're willing to turn from your belief in yourself and your own sinful behavior and saying, you know what, I'm going I'm to do things different. I'm going I'm to turn to God. I'm going to ask him for help. But it continues in deeds of appropriate, that are appropriate to repentance. That's what the Bible says there. And so we see this happened in Manasseh's life, right? He, he cries out to God, and then all of a sudden there's this change. The people are probably thinking, what is he doing? Well, he removed the foreign gods. Why? Because it was dishonoring to God. That's something God clearly says, do not do this. <laughs> he took down the idols, took down the altars. He set up the altar of the Lord and he began serving him. That's there in verses 15 to 16. In other words, what's Manasseh showing us? It's not just talk. It's not just a simple little prayer. Oh God, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of down and out here. I need some help. No, it doesn't end there. It's not just talk. It is faith in God that results in the godly change of direction. That's the only way it can happen. And so, it means turning to God from your sin. Secondly, it means forsaking self-sufficiency and submissively casting ourselves on God's undeserved favor. I know that's a lot of words, but think about it. When you're going away from God... Who's the captain of your ship? You think you are, right? You're going where you want to go. You're doing what you want to do. And all of a sudden, you come to Christ. What do you have to do? You have to forsake that. You have to realize, you know what? Even this Christian life I'm called to live, I can't live. It's impossible. Impossible. There's not a day probably that doesn't go by that some form of sin doesn't creep into my life somewhere. 
And it's only by God's grace and Christ's work on the cross that he allows us to continue. I mean, none of us would be here tonight if God said, you know what? If you believe in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. But you know what? From now on, if you mess up just one time, you're, you're toast. Okay, you're going to heaven. None of us would be going to heaven. None of us. And so you have to forsake that self-sufficiency, the idea that you have it all together, that you're going you're gonna to make it work, that this is going to, you know, you have the ingenuity to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and change and, and, and do everything that's right so you can look good in the eyes of people in the church and, and just on the outside at least, they'll think that everything's going well even though it's not. Because every one of us has a war in our hearts every day. Are we going to obey ourselves and our own flesh or are we going to obey God and his word? It's a war, and it continues to be a war every day. We don't grow out of it. You don't reach a spiritual plateau in your Christian life where finally you go, oh, I don't deal with sin anymore. <laughs> Doesn't happen. And anybody that tells you it does, they're lying. Which is proof positive that they're wrong. <laughs> so it's important to understand that it means forsaking self-sufficiency. But then also, you have to submissively cast yourself before God for his undeserved favor. And that's what it says there in verse 12. It says he humbled himself greatly. Greatly. See, people who usually sin greatly are in much need of humility because they're, they're sinning boldly. They don't care, right? They're just out there doing whatever they want to do. And they'll say things and do things that some people would just go, whoa, I can't believe they just did that. I can't believe they're admitting this. I can't believe they, they just, they, they, they put this on their Facebook. I mean, what are they thinking, right? And they're just boldly doing it. They don't care. Well, it says that Manasseh had to humble himself greatly, not just a little bit, but greatly. Think about it. He's the king. I mean, at his word, you know, your head's on a platter. So he had a lot of power. He had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of servants. He had everything in his little corner and he needed humility and and really humility is at the heart of repentance it starts right there it starts right there i mean i've I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years and you get to the point where you're trying to present the gospel to them and you're they're agreeing they're not pushing back they're agreeing and you get down to the point where it's like well you know do you want to commit your life to Christ? Right? We've probably all had people at that point. And some people, you know, you can tell, man, this is heartfelt. And it's genuine. And, you know, I, I don't really lead them in a prayer. I say, well, you know what? You tell that to God. Let's just pray and tell it to God. And usually I do that because I don't want them repeating words that I'm saying. You know, I mean, if, they, if they're being convicted by the Holy Spirit that they're a sinner... I don't need to lead them in a prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Why would I need to do that? The Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of communicating that to them. But I've also seen, and many times when I've done that, let people just go ahead and pray. They pray a prayer that is filled with pride, that has no humility at all, that is, is completely self-sufficient. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And it's like, you want to stop them in the middle of the prayer and go, wait a minute, what, what are you doing? <laughs> because you're not repenting. You're not crying out for God for mercy. You're, you're even 
at a certain point, you're, you're, you're saying, wow, you, boy, I, I'm just so proud of myself that I'm making this new fresh start and turning over this new leaf. When they start using words like that, it's like, wait a minute, stop, stop, the, stop the show, right? Because that's all it is. Um, they don't want to admit that they're sinners. They can't say the word. Because if they do, they're going to have to be totally dependent on God for their salvation. And they still think that somehow, you know, that, that going to church or getting baptized or taking communion or whatever, praying before a meal, somehow is earning brownie points um, between God and them. They don't want to admit that they're, they're, they're sinners totally dependent on him for salvation. They don't want to humble themselves by submitting to God's ways. And that Hebrew word translated humbled is often used in, in military context of, of, of bringing a proud, rebellious people into subjection. Somebody who you conquered and their pride and their, and their, their rebellion is all there, you're just going to break them. You're going you're to break them down. You're going to humble them to the point where they can't do anything but depend on you. That's what they do with prisoners when they, foreign countries take people prisoner. What do they do? They don't put them in a lavish lifestyle and give them everything they want to eat and everything. Wow, they put them in a little cell. They say, you know what, if you're good, maybe you'll get a bigger cell. And if you're really good, maybe instead of one piece of bread, we'll get two. You know, and if you work really hard, eight hours out there breaking all those rocks, then maybe we'll even let you take a shower at the end of the day. You know, why? Because it's all based on breaking them. It's all, they're, they're not entitled to anything. And so when we use that spiritually, the emphasis is on a proud, independent person really lifting himself up. And Manasseh, whose life to this point could be summed up really by, hey, you know what? I didn't listen to my dad. I did it my way. (laughs) I did it my way. I did what I wanted to do with my kingship. And it turned from his, this this self-sufficiency, self-will, and all of a sudden he's transformed and he's casting himself totally on God's undeserved favor. And it says in verse 13, then he came to know personally what he had known intellectually all along. He knew who the God of Israel was. He knew all this stuff about God. He knew it. But it says there, he knew personally that the Lord was God. See, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to know that he's your Lord, that he's your Savior. What happens when a person repents? Um... I mean, does God put them on probation? Does he say, well, we'll we'll consider your application? No, he doesn't do that. Okay, when you turn to God, he's willing to meet you where you're at. Third thing, repentance results in God's undeserved blessing. Undeserved blessing. And this is is the neat part of the story, right? When Manasseh repented, repented, God could have simply said to Manasseh, you know what? Uh, I hear you talking, but you've messed up everything so royally, um, pun intended, by the way. After what you've done, don't expect me to, to, to bail you out of this. He could have done that. God could have been completely right in doing that. But look at verse 13. It says, God brought him to Jerusalem to his kingdom. I don't know if God had to bring him. Maybe he was shamed to do this. I don't know. Maybe he didn't feel worthy, but it says God brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. It's God's amazing grace. See, some people are so far down the gutter of sin when they get saved, they can't understand that 
God loves them. And you know what? God can use them. And they continue going through their life, beating themselves up on where the life they lived before Christ. And the enemy takes advantage of that, and so he basically paralyzes them because they never feel worthy of any kind of ministry. Oh, I could never do that. You know, you don't understand what I was before. Look at the Apostle Paul, right? He's a prime example. I mean, he literally killed Christians before he became one. And then he wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, go figure. This is God's grace. This is his mercy. Did, did Manasseh deserve this, to be brought back into Jerusalem and into his kingdom? No, he didn't. Not at all. I mean, God would have perfectly been perfectly right to say, you know what, I forgive you, but you know what, I'm, unfortunately, you're going to have to die a captive in Babylon because of your actions. You're going to pay the consequences. Because there are consequences for our sins. And I'm not saying by any means that, you know, you go down that, that road of sin and then you get saved and all the consequences go away. No. There's a lot of people in prison today who did some horrendous things. But you know what? Their hearts were genuinely saved. They're genuinely repented of what they did. But you know what? The consequences are still there. They're still in prison. And they'll be in prison for most of their life because of what they've done. Did God forgive them? Definitely. But guess what? God has a purpose for leaving them in there. Hopefully it's, it's just to further his kingdom in there, to get the word out behind, behind the bars that there is a God who saves. Um, and this is what, what happened there in verse 17. It says, the people still sacrificed in the high places. You see that? They were, they were damaged by Manasseh's sin. They were affected by their king. They were influenced to the degree that even when he said, hey, we don't want to do this anymore, they, they, they continued. And guess what? Uh, when, we, when we continue with his son Ammon, he followed his father's sin, not his repentance. And he was assassinated after two years on the throne. So Manasseh's repentance did not restore even the life to the prophet Isaiah that he most likely had murdered, executed, and others like him. It didn't bring back his own sons from the fires of Molech. He had to live with those memories the rest of his life. And see, that's the interesting thing. Is sin always leaves a scar. Sin always leaves a scar. But Manasseh was able to enjoy God's undeserved favor after he repented. And it says that his kingdom was restored. And even better, he came to know God and to be reconciled to him because he had a personal relationship with him. And when he died, instead of incurring God's wrath, which he deserved, which we all deserved, what, what, he was welcomed into God's presence. It's amazing. Amazing story of God's grace. That's how God waits to bless every sinner who repents. He's not going to undo all the consequences of your life. Sometimes that's part of his grace to even teach you the seriousness of your sin, but he will give you undeserved blessing beyond measure. He brings you into a family. He puts you in a church where you find a love that you've never seen before. And you can grow in your relationship with others and with him. He arranges the circumstances of your life for good as a loving father. And he cares about your every need. He forgives all of your sin. He welcomes you into heaven when you die. What a wonderful blessing that is. 
and we're with him for all eternity. I mean, complete, amazing, abundant grace he expresses to us. I mean, I think we're tipped off at the very beginning to God's grace and his, his mercy in the very, very first verse on this guy. Because it says that he reigned how many years? 55 years. 55 years in Jerusalem. That's the longest reign, listen, of any king of Judah. And he was probably one of the most wicked. That was longer than David. It was longer than Solomon. It was longer than Hezekiah, his father. I mean, why would God allow this wicked king to occupy the throne for 55 years? I mean, it blows our mind. For the same reason, he has put up with all the wickedness in the world up to this point in history. In 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, I love this verse, and we'll, we'll close with this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Look, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should what? Should reach repentance. Um, it's, it's so so important, I think, that we understand that because we were all at a point in life where either we were giving up on life or we thought God was giving up on us, but he didn't. And you know what? He, he touched our heart. We repented of our sin. We turned to Christ. We became a new person in Christ. And we look back at that and we go, wow, I, I couldn't have imagined this. I would never even imagine this. And yet, God was patient with us. And that gives us an indicator that, you know what, we need to be patient toward others as well. Whether they're as bad a sinner as we are or not, God can still reach out. God can still uh, touch them in a certain way. Um, there was a certain poor woman in the slums of London, and she was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday to the coast at the ocean. And she had never seen the ocean before and when she saw it they said she burst into tears and those around her thought it was strange that she should cry because it was such a lovely holiday that we arranged for her to have and they asked her why, why in the world are you crying and pointing to the ocean she answered this is the only thing I have ever seen that there was enough of. <laughs> this is the only thing that I've ever seen that there was enough of. And the Bible describes God has oceans of mercy, right? Oceans of mercy. And there's enough of it for the worst of sinners, including you, including me. And we just need to be reminded of that fact. So let's close the word of prayer and then we can... Uh, have some discussion. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of, of Manasseh. Thank you for his dad, who was a good example to him. But Lord, even in his sin, this turned out for your glory. And sometimes we need to know that, Lord, um, even though you have the right to judge us and punish us, it's only because 
of our faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place on Calvary and bore our sin, that we are spared of your wrath. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And uh, Lord, we know that sometimes it feels like, especially if we're not a believer yet, that sometimes you're after us. Like God wants to ruin the party. But the truth is, is that he's after you to bless you. Even if you've been the worst of sinners, if you turn to God from your sin, he will forgive you. He will extend his mercy, his grace to you. He will bless you. No one is beyond hope because God's grace is greater, as the hymn says, than all of our sin. And so, Father, we pray that we would be able to understand that truth and take that truth out of here tonight as we pray for loved ones, as we pray for neighbors, as we pray for those even in our government to come to Christ, to come to faith in Christ, that somehow you would arrange for them to hear the gospel, maybe for the millionth time, who knows, but Lord, that you would turn that switch, that you would activate their heart to see the truth of your word, and Lord, that you would transform them, that you would save them, just as you have saved us, and Lord, we thank you for that, and pray you bless our time of conversation now, we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen, amen.